Stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome to another part of this exponential series here on the Innovation Show, brought to you proudly by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services and powering its customers by making innovative financial services available and accessible to all. Today's show is with Guy Perlmuter, part one of Present Future. You can win a copy of his book by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter. It's a fascinating episode. Here it comes. The purpose of today's book is twofold. First, to overthrow the myth that we are living in a period of change. The entire history of civilization is all about change, and more than that, about technological change. This is what defines us as a species. This is what propels us forward. Change is coming faster and faster, that's for sure, and it will continue to accelerate even more. And second, to highlight and explain not only the benefits, but also the risks that a tech-driven lifestyle throws at us. What is remarkable about the current technological changes we are experiencing is that we are sitting at the intersection of a set of extraordinary advances. Faster microprocessors, cheaper digital storage, ubiquitous access to information, efficient algorithms, and an increasingly better understanding of the laws of nature. These ingredients, decades in the making, are some of the key enablers of the deep tech revolution. Deep tech is where science meets technology, where PhDs and subject matter experts are able to apply their knowledge and transform it from intellectual achievements and academic papers into systems, devices, prototypes, and products and methodologies. Deep tech companies are the ones effectively building the future of the world economy, one technology at a time, robotics, biotech, nanotech, artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, energy, aerospace, agritech, you name it, the list goes on. In each chapter of today's book, our guest explores one or more technologies that are bound to become part of our future. He tries to focus on the advances that are created to address inevitabilities in the making. Longer human lifespans, population growth, an increasing demand for energy, mobility and food, and ever more complex systems fed by unimaginable amounts of data flowing through a vastly interconnected infrastructure over space, air, land, and sea. The future is already here. We're living in it. It's all around us, a present future. And in his book, we'll take a journey to discover what that means to all of us. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Present Future, Business, Science, and the Deep Tech Revolution, Guy Perlmutter. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Aidan. That was a serious mouthful, man. I'm <laughs> I'll need some water after that. And I'm going to reach back here and just show our audience. I have a copy of your brilliant book up for grabs. It is so deep in research that it's going to be such a challenge to even touch the iceberg of this touch the tip of the iceberg of the amount of content that is in it. But we'll give it the best stab that we can. And I thank you to let our audience know, this is part one of a multi part series. And as I said, we won't get near the amount of research that Guy has done for this book. I thought a good way to start would be an explanation of the deep tech revolution and the technologies of the past, the present and the future. 
I'll tee you up here with an excerpt and we can take it from there whichever way you like. You say, the world experienced what we now call the first industrial revolution beginning around 1760. At the time, the production of goods shifted from individual craftsmen to machines in factories using water and steam power. By 1870, the second industrial revolution, also known as the technological revolution, popularized electricity assembly lines and the division of labor. Then once more, beginning in the 1950s, the third industrial revolution, the digital revolution swept the planet, ushering in the era of digital electronics and the so-called information age. I thought that would be a great way to tee you up to bring us whichever way you wanted to set the stage for today's show. Thank you, absolutely. So when you think about the history of humankind, uh, there uh, we basically live a succession of changes, of revolutions, of improvements, uh, uh, hopefully uh, in the general sense of societal and economical and hopefully geopolitical uh, behavior among nations, among societies, among people. Uh, the fact of the matter is that technology has always driven those processes forward faster and faster. And when we think about the fourth industrial revolution, which many experts are calling this day and age where we're now living the, the, the uh, encounter of technology, traditional technology, electronics and circuitry and cybernetics with biology, bioinformatics, and human health and biological systems in general, uh, we come to a conclusion that there are many aspects of the current uh, uh, industrial revolution that we are living through that have been in the making for decades, right? Things don't change overnight. Uh, it's like that very famous passage from, from a, a Hemingway book that says, uh, uh, how did he go broke? slowly and then suddenly. This is how technology sneaks on us, right? We cannot think about our lives without smartphones, without computers and tablets and, and some apps that we use on a daily, blaze, uh, daily basis, without streaming services, without search engines. But this has, was not the case just a few years ago, right? So the way I think uh, people should think about industrial revolutions as a whole is that the mother of all the change that we have been living uh, throughout our uh, uh, history as a species was the first industrial revolution. This is where things really took off. And there's a great book by Ian Morris called How the West Won that is basically about that. And if you had to summarize it in a couple of words, it's the steam engine, right? The steam engine is the pivotal point in the history of humankind where we saw how we could make the forces of nature work for us, work on our behalf. And this is why I say that the better understanding of laws of nature will make us evolve and accelerate technological change ever more. And if you look at a very simple chart, uh, which is on the horizontal axis, time, and on a vertical axis, the global GDP, you will see that throughout our history as a species, up until the mid 18th century, the both horizontal lines were parallel, right? The, the GDP, the global GDP was this tiny sliver of, of, of wealth created by societies. 
up until the first industrial revolution. This is when uh, we were able to create economic value. We had population growth, economic growth, prosperity. Uh, of course, a ton of problems came along and we are now living with this huge climate crisis we're living. And I'm sure we're gonna talk about this probably not today, but definitely in our, uh, our next uh, uh, conversation, uh, how the whole uh, 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 problem of getting our atmosphere warmer began way back then when we started to have machines and factories and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we should understand that our current uh, technological uh, evolution uh, is not a snapshot. It's a movie and it's been in the making for for centuries and centuries. Yeah, I love how you do this in the book. And it, it reminds me of exponential growth. It's slowly and then quickly. So we're seeing the dividends paid today of all those seeds that were planted such a long time ago. And I love how you do this in the book. You show us the originally planted seeds back, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago or more and how then they manifest today and how they're going to continue to manifest, but this time at a much more faster, at an exponential rate. And like you said, climate is one of those things, unfortunately, that we planted the seeds back then and we're unfortunately paying the price today. I love how you do that. I found myself throughout the book constantly telling stuff to my kids and my wife and kind of going, hey, did you know that the original cars, for example, were going to be EVs? but they got beaten to the punch by gasoline because the batteries ran out all the time, stuff like that, really interesting uh, foresights. And let's start with that because you tell us with autonomous vehicles, the automotive sector has been around for more than a century and is going through a time of transformation that is impacting almost every aspect of that business, from cars themselves to the roads and highways we drive on and the cost of insurance policies to regulatory requirements, the supply chains, manufacturing processes and consumer behavior. But back then, if we back up the intent, the internal combustion engine came on the scene at the end of the 18th century, a man named John Barber obtained the patent for a gas turbine in nine, in 1791. And over the following decades, the engine has been refined by many different inventors. Maybe we'll start there and we'll start today's show talking about vehicles all the way up to autonomous vehicles. Absolutely. So as you said, the, the need to move around, the need to, 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 to kind of go from A to B is something that we've experienced uh, uh, as a species forever. But uh, it's hard to think of another invention that has shaped the way cities are built and the way our lives are built uh, uh, as, 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 as impactful as automobiles were. And the idea of the internal combustion engine is, is relatively old. And it's one that uh, you can tweak and you can make a ton of changes, but uh, it is bound by a bunch of physics law. The pesky physics of the universe will always kind of hit you in the head. Um, and it, it is quite a shock for many people that uh, back in the late uh, 19th century, right, not that long ago, uh, about a third of the U.S. cars were electric because, as you said, the early days of, of development of cars 
uh, were a, a tug of war between should we go with this internal combustion engine that has so many flaws and so much noise and it's so hard to kind of to refill uh, or should we go with this electric elegant solution where the noise is rel relatively uh, a little and that can get us from A to B. So there's this famous car uh, developed by uh, a gentleman by the name of Oliver Fritchell, and I'm reading here because I don't want to butcher his name, uh, and he, he developed a car called the 11-mile uh, Fritchell electric, where he left from Nebraska to New York, driving his little electric car, and he did it in 20 days. He had autonomy for about 100 miles per charge. Now we are, you know, some cars get to 50 miles, maybe 300 miles per charge. So we, we, of course, got better at that. But the fact of the matter is that in the early 20th century, we had a car that could do a very, very, that's a like 1,800 miles uh, uh, stretch of, 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 of road, uh, fully electric. And he even got a store in, on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan to sell his electric cars. So this is like the grandfather of the Teslas of the world, of the Priuses of the world, and so on and so forth. And to your point, the only reason why we didn't go full electric way back then, it's because this was a time where Texas oil was pretty much uh, seeping through every single hole you drilled on the ground, and it became very inexpensive and very easy. And you had, you know, filling stations all over the country, the U.S. Uh, and then it took us about uh, 70 or 80 years to think, you know what, maybe the whole combustion engine thing is not the way to go. Maybe we should rethink electric. And then this has opened up this whole new avenue with batteries, with recycling of materials, with trying to find the most efficient battery. So you'll see this theme coming back over and over and over, how we live in the present future. If you were in the 18th, uh, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, and you saw an electric car, you would say, okay, this is the future, this is crazy. And it took us more than a hundred years to get back to where we started. So I, I find it's fascinating. And this is why I, I go through those historical tidbits all over the book to try to illustrate to folks that we are always creating the future. We just have to be smart enough and, and, and pay attention. One of the things that dawned on me was if you believe in stuff like quantum realities or, you know, there's multiple realities at once. I was like, going, going, I wonder what that reality looks like where we, we went with electrical vehicles and not with gasoline, because back to your point about the impact on the environment, it was massive and would have avoided things like fracking many wars would have been avoided. <laughs> we won't go down that rabbit hole. But I wanted to highlight here a point that when we look at innovation, oftentimes people when they're in at the cold face of innovation, those listeners to the show perhaps working in innovation roles, working on products or services, disrupting in industries, we tend to look at the invention we have, or the new product or service we're trying to bring to market. But we have to look at the entire ecosystem when we're looking at that. And you look at this as part of your investment firm. And you said here that even though cars powered by electricity had many advantages, gas powered cars were cheaper. And in 1908, Ford introduced the famous Model T, which was half the price of electric cars and mass production thus took off. That same year, the US inventor Charles Kettering 
and created the electric ignition system. And that eliminated the need for a crank to start the internal combustion engine. Limited access to electricity outside of cities, however, combined with low oil prices, like you said, paved the way for gasoline to dominate gasoline powered cars to dominate the market. And I just felt that was important to highlight because it's all the nodes of the network that come together to propel an idea forward. It's not just the idea itself. You're absolutely right. And, and the cherry on the top of this, uh, of this particular uh, road, and you're right, right, I'm sure there's a multiverse where we would have been driving electric cars for more than 100 years, and other problems would inevitably have arised. But, uh, but uh, you're correct, this is, this is another conversation. But here's the cherry on top of this. Uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, they actually had established an agreement so that Ford would produce electric cars powered by Edison's labs and Edison's uh, you know, domain of electricity and batteries and so on and so forth. So we were this close to you know, following a path that would have changed. Imagine how many things would have been different should that have occurred 100 plus years ago. So, uh, so it just goes to prove that uh, that it's never a snapshot, it's always a move. It's all about everything that has been happening uh, throughout multiple dimensions of a specific invention. While we're on that point, and I'm not going to stay in the rabbit hole of the multiverse, but on the point of you as an investor, because I, I find this is really important for people who work in innovation roles, because they, they we get frustrated sometimes and kind of go, why won't you take my great idea? The great example I, I always use is the QWERTY keyboard, which was designed for typewriters, which is actually designed to slow you down, still prevails and is still on my Mac here in front of me, which is like, why the heck? Why don't I have a Vorjak keyboard at, or some more ergonomic keyboard? And you must see this all the time when you're looking at an investment, you probe the network or the ecosystem in which that idea must exist. Maybe we'll just take a little sidestep from the book here to hear your view on that. And particularly for people who work in startups or work with new ideas, bringing them to market. Now, that's a great question and a great comment. And you're absolutely right. The thing that I realize, and I've been doing this for, for, for you know, more than two decades, I can tell you that the most common mistake, if you will, that entrepreneurs and founders they usually make is that they fall in love with the solution when they should fall in love with the problem, right? The thing with entrepreneurship and with innovation is that sometimes uh, as, a, as, a, as a student, as a researcher, as a scientist, you find a very elegant solution to a problem and you fall in love with your solution and you think that solution has to see the light of day. You have to put it out there. You have to have as many people as possible using it, right? Either as a system, as a, as a device, as a, as a methodology, doesn't matter. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, the world is not concerned with solutions. It's concerned with problems. So the ideal uh, uh, starting point for any entrepreneur and for any successful business is to look around and say, okay, this is a huge problem and I think I can crack it. Once you present a solution to a specific problem that is relevant, that people pay attention to, that, that really impacts them in some way, and it could be a small group of people impacted by a very specific problem in a huge way, that's a market, 
or it could be a huge amount of people impacted by a specific problem in a relatively minor way and everything in between. But for founders, for entrepreneurs, it's not about the solution, it's about the problem. And once you get over that, once you change your, your mindset, your frame of mind when it comes to how you are going to approach a specific uh, uh, company, I think, at least in my mind and, in, and according to, to, to our uh, uh, processes, uh, it makes things easier. And I want to just link that back to some ideas that our audience would have heard recently. We talked about this, for example, when we looked at Bayer, when we looked at BASF recently on the series with Ben Bensow, when they went out mining for ideas from their organizations, they found it most effective when they actually put out a problem to the organization and people came back with their solutions. So it works in corporate innovation as well as in the startup world and indeed in guys, Guy's world of investing as well. So bringing it back to the book now. So I'm going to jump back into the book as well, the the quantum universe of the book. And one of the shows we did recently, Guy was with Pierre Vach, who was the father of the idea of scenario planning, we did this show with multi again, multiple part show with Art Kleiner. And you talk about the projections you see, for example, with EVs, because Pierre Vach worked for BP British Petroleum, and he was looking at all these scenarios, what happens if the price of oil increases, etc, etc. And I wonder ever, did he ever look at actually what would happen if EVs started taking over, you cover some of these projections in the book, maybe you'll give us a high level view of what you saw when you looked at this. Of course. Uh, and and one thing that that you have noticed, and I'm sure uh, uh, you know, readers, either past readers of the book or future readers of the book will notice is that uh, and I talk about that in the in the very early page, uh, 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 early uh, in the beginning of the book. Uh, I try to uh, shy away from you know hand waving, smokes and mirrors. Let's make forecasts about when all of us are going to be using our flying cars to go wherever. Right. The 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 the, begin, the whole introduction of the book is about very smart people making horrible predictions about the future. There is a whole list of them. People that are successful, uh, you know, founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, people that have failed miserably when they make predictions that didn't stand the test of time. So I went out of my way not to make predictions that uh, were not obvious. And some of the predictions, and you touched upon them when you started uh, uh, this, this conversation, uh, are what I call inevitabilities, right? It's easy to predict uh, a specific trend when you can see it's inevitable and we're going to talk about them. So one could argue, okay, fossil fuels going out of our daily lives and being replaced by renewable energy feels like an inevitability. However, every single attempt to put a date on that over time has failed because, because it's very hard to predict how those changes are going to affect the larger chain of events. So right now, we're living this horrible and dramatic conflict in Europe between Russia, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which has been creating a, a, a chaos in commodities markets uh, and has made, I guess, most of Europe rethink their 
energetic matrix with their dependencies on gas, natural gas, and of course, fuel, which is a, a key export from Russia. And all of those uh, 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 limited supply uh, 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 commodities we live off of are, uh, are, are breaking points in every single supply chain. So uh, we have studied, and it's not only me, but a ton of people, very smart people have studied the impacts of increasing oil production, increasing electric car production, and reducing our dependency against the non-renewables. And here's what I think people uh, kind of not always keep in the back of their, their minds. Uh, right now, about 85% of the world's energy is non-renewable, right? It's coal, it's gas, it's um, uh, it's uh, fossil fuels, right? And in another 15 to 20 years, we're hoping that the 80% or the uh, 80%, 2% is going to go down to 75 or 74. This whole idea that we're going to be able to live off renewable sources uh, in the next decade or so, it is not going to happen no matter how fast we try to push this. There are limitations on how much land we have to build solar farms, how efficient our batteries are, how we can you know, harness the power of wind, geothermal, uh, all that is going to be addressed. Technology has been, uh, uh, now there's been a lot of money directed into climate tech, into energy-driven startups. That's a very hot area. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are a founder, climate tech now is back with a vengeance after the debacle of the early 2000s. Now they're back with a vengeance. However, to your point, the whole idea that this is going to be uh, easy to spot and to predict uh, it's crazy. I mean, look at people who are forecasting the end of, of the Brent or the barrel of oil of how this market was going one way but down. And we are now due to this uh, uh, shock caused by the war. We're now at all time highs and, and the world is scrambling and gas prices are out of whack everywhere. So I feel that there is a lot of, of, of uh, you have to have a lot of humility when you want to make this very bold predictions. But there is a trend, and a lot of European countries have already established uh, a deadline up until when the car manufacturers will be allowed to produce combustion, uh, internal combustion engine cars. So we are seeing an inner irreversible trend from fleets, trucks, cars, medium fleets, large fleets, to go electric. So this revolution is on its way. But the speed with which we're going to see that, the speed with which you and I, we're going to be, uh, you know, seeing most of the cars on the streets, electric versus, uh, uh, versus, versus diesel or gasoline or whatever, uh, is something that is very hard to predict. I think the safe thing to say is we have already seen more than enough signs that this is a trend that is not going to go anywhere, but there will be bumps on the road pardon my pun, there will be bumps on the road for, for this transition to occur. I don't know if you saw, there's a brilliant movie, I think it's on Netflix, called Don't Look Up. Have you seen this? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's about climate change. I, I certainly derived that as the, the main message that there's this asteroid hurtling towards Earth. And along comes some people who actually go, oh, whoa, whoa, don't destroy the asteroid well before it becomes close to us. What if we mine the materials off there? And I, and I often think about that as such an amazing 
metaphor for what happens because when there's a vested interest in protecting the resource, people will find a way to do it. And in, in, in addition, there's a brilliant quote by Upton Sinclair, uh, 1878, he said he was a, a novelist and social reformer in the US, he said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. So we see this all the time, people resist because they have a vested interest in resisting, they'll often say you're crazy, you're talking crazy here, because they don't want to actually hear the reality of what you're you're actually saying here. And this is actually a huge challenge behind all these things you're talking about. It was even the case back when EVs could have taken off, there was a huge vested interest in them not, because people would make more money. But anyway, I, I can't believe we're still only on chapter one. <laughs> but um, let's build on that because present future, going more into the future and, and actually in the present, you know, it's already here, it's, it's not equally distributed. As William Gibson said, you say in the book, experts predict that autonomous vehicles will be the rule and not the exec exception over the coming decades. And just like we receive software updates on our cell phones, the software responsible for driving your car will also be remotely updated, as in a Tesla. But apart from security related concerns, autonomous vehicles mean a whole raft of new considerations from trolley insurance, to the premiums on which insurance companies themselves place on these autonomous vehicles. I thought this is really important, because this goes back to the whole idea is, you can't just look at the benefit from the the solution, you need to look at the whole ecosystem. And AVs, autonomous vehicles, have a massive, huge, multi-part consideration when you look at that as a product. You're absolutely right. And again, to many people's surprises, the surprise, the, the whole idea of autonomous vehicles is, has been around for 40 years, about 40 years. We had, uh, you know, tests at the University of at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, very early on, very early days trying to start uh, to map. And again, it was a research project that took its time. But again, fourth industrial revolution, deep tech, a lot of economic value being driven off faster processors, cheaper storage, faster algorithms, and here we are. I think a lot of people overestimate how quickly we'll be able to just hop into a autonomous vehicle, leave uh, home, go to work in any weather condition uh, with any type of things that, that, uh, that the nature or the urban environment throws at us. I think we're very far from that, from the level five, fully autonomous, take me from here to there, uh, regardless of any uh, any other factor uh, uh, scenario. That's still ways, ways, ways uh, uh, out of reach. But there are for sure a number of situations where technology is here now that could help us. So gated communities, uh, university campi, uh, uh, industrial uh, settings, uh, uh, government uh, installations, places where there is a very well-defined environment where the machine doesn't have to make a gazillion considerations. There was this fantastic uh, a video that I saw uh, a few months ago uh, where uh, uh, an engineer uh, posted this uh, as, a, as an edge case for any algorithm that was trying to be used for autonomous vehicles, which was uh, he was driving his car, you know, traditional car, and in front of him, there was this truck. 
and the truck was loaded with traffic lights that were flashing. And so the truck was moving, the traffic lights were moving, and he was behind that. And it was, I would love to see how uh, an algorithm would handle that scenario. Wow. Which is, which is very hard for you to predict. If you're developing an, an autonomous vehicle uh, uh, algorithm, you will, I don't think you'll think about, oh, maybe uh, my car will be parked behind a truck loaded with lights that are flashing green and yellow and red. So there are so many edge cases, and that's how we call the cases that you have to, 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 to be able to deal with. And there are now, you've, you've talked, talked about how these uh, technological trends, they just break into myriads of other avenues. Now, there's this whole area of, of, of labeling images and creating virtual scenarios and training autonomous cars using a virtual environment where you can create uh, you know, accidents and, and, and bad behavior and crazy weather so that you can evaluate how those incredibly complex algorithms are going to act. And then uh, there is the whole aspect of how the insurance world, which is one of the oldest industries out there, people don't appreciate how old the insurance business is. It goes back to the to the days of the uh, Babylons and and the ancient civilizations that did a lot of, of 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 sailing around the Mediterranean Sea, and that started the idea of insurance. And documents have been found where you can see the terms of those insurance agreements. So it's an old, old, old profession. And this industry now has to deal with the fact that in normal conditions, AV, autonomous vehicles supposedly will be safer and will bring down the cost of insurance. And there are new business models that instead of paying upfront, you just pay according to the number of miles you drive and to the neighborhoods you're driving through and where your GPS tells the insurance company you are parking your car. So all those considerations, they're going to change the dynamics of this whole ancient industry that I'm sure uh, we're going to see play out over the next few years. When I write, I, I use this example of uh, General Mao. So in 1958, the four pests in China, I don't know if you've heard of this. So yeah, so fascinating that and just for our audience, very quickly, there, there was a, a war way raged on these pests like rats, for example, but sparrows were on that war because they were eating some of the crops. So people were killing these sparrows, the whole of China, you know, eggs were broken, nests were smashed, they made noises so people, the sparrows wouldn't land in trees and they became exhausted and died. And in time, they killed off the sparrow population. But they forgot that one of the main foods of a sparrow was locusts. And the locust population grew and as a result, absolutely wiped out crops and vegetations in China. And I often think about that about some of the things that we lean on, like AI, what will be the repercussion of that? We don't know really, because you can't scenario plan every aspect of the future. But one of the really interesting ones you talk about is, is autonomous vehicles. For example, if I bring in autonomous vehicles, and I have an access economy where I don't need to own a car anymore, why would I bother having a car? I don't need to store it, as a result, where the car is stored, that makes maybe land that's on the periphery of, of a town or a village more profitable, where actually people, you know, the AV manufacturers can buy that land and store the cars there. But it also destroys car washes, it destroys car parks, 
it creates different repercussions there that we're not even aware of. But one of the ones you talk about that's fascinating is charging and how charging will work in the future. I'd love you to take us through that one. Absolutely. The technology is about, I mean, there's something about charging that we are very, very familiar with right now, right? We always have our phones in our pockets. We're always kind of, uh, you know, uh, going through the, the, the challenges of making sure we have enough juice in our batteries to last throughout the day. And there are days where you need it more or less. And this is just, uh, uh, again, one of those pesky physics problems, right? You need batteries and batteries by definition will need to be recharged and have a limit. They have a physical limit of how many cycles they can take. So all these are, are just realities of the universe we, we live in. And the idea of this being uh, 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 used in cars just transfers uh, this issue of having enough juice in your car battery uh, to last uh, for your whole trip. You don't want to be stranded, God knows where, without you know, fuel. And in that case, it's, it's basically uh, the, the, uh, the battery charge that is your fuel. So there are many models to charge batteries, and we are now living uh, a, 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 a very, very interesting moment in the investment world when we're looking at a number of companies that are developing solutions for this issue. Because again, you start with this inevitability that electric cars are going to dominate fleets over the next few decades. Then you have to think about the repercussions. So how and where are these guys going to be charged and how fast does the charging process occur? Because right now the technology for many types of batteries is such that you cannot just like you go into a gas station, it takes you a handful of minutes and you're good to go. Charging an electric car takes time. Uh, there are people working on that to make it faster, to make it smoother. Uh, but there are also people looking at very interesting types of technologies that allow you to charge your uh, vehicle or battery uh, using induction, electrical induction, which means that instead of you having to physically plug a cable uh, in your car so that there are electrons flowing into your battery, uh, you ultimately rest on top of a very specific set of coils and electromagnetic fields, and you'll get energy, you'll get uh, charge uh, with on a wireless manner that will allow you to go and recharge your battery. So one scenario, uh, and we've seen that, I'm sure most of our, our, our audience has already uh, seen that or heard about it, is there are roads that are being built uh, where you will not have your 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 layer of asphalt between the asphalt and the and the ground there are uh, plates that will charge you as you drive so you're driving and you're charging you're driving and you're charging there are other uh, tests going on where traffic lights in cities are going to be loaded with specific devices that are going to be able to wirelessly send energy to your battery so that at every traffic light, you'll be able to get a little bit of juice into your battery. So all those are, you know, are second and third order consequences of the whole EV revolution that I think uh, are, are changing the landscape and will change to your point, car parks and car washes and, uh, and, and, and filling stations. All those uh, aspects of our, our cities are going to be impacted. And again, future is present you have to look around you have to realize where it is and where where it's trailing i find it so fascinating 
particularly like firstly for anybody you know we don't even know what driving and charging at the same time will do for the human in the car you know <laughs> my hair will be all frizzy because it'll be all charged and everywhere <laughs> so there's there's stuff we don't even know that would be a mild uh, circumstance but the the real thing that I found from reading this and by the way we're still on chapter one for our audience <laughs> I'm laughing here because we we didn't even cover everything in chapter one we just took little nuggets but is that how these technologies that are advancing at an exponential rate are actually intertwining and combining. That's the real thing. Because if you were just to try to understand one on its own, that would be a challenge. But the fact that they're actually powering each other AI and uh, IoT and 3D printing, that's where it becomes absolutely fascinating. And you leave that to our own imagination, but you bring them down into separate parts within the book. Perhaps at this stage, we'll get a view from you on the intertwining of those, the combination of those different technologies, and then we'll go on to the next uh, chapter of the book. Absolutely. I think it's a fantastic question and one that uh, is the essence of innovation, right? Because innovation is basically you take stuff that exists and you combine it and you tweak it and eventually you create a small new layer to it and bingo, you have a totally new business, a totally new uh, technology. And this is why deep tech is so fascinating to me. And this is why we write about that uh, on a regular basis. It's because right now, access to those core technologies is becoming cheaper and ubiquitous. And now people can look at those and use those and come up with their own solutions and their own ideas. Right now, the access we have to knowledge, to processing power, to storage, uh, to algorithms is such that uh, we can really create stuff quicker and, 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 and more robustly than ever before. And I'll give you a very practical example. When I did my master's in the mid-1990s, my master's was in computer vision using artificial intelligence. You know, it was very, very early days. And I've developed a system where a camera would focus on an object and there were specific types of objects that worked with that particular model. And regardless of, uh, you know, orientation or size or, or type, I, you know, I would be able to recognize that and say, oh, this is a hand, this is a key, this is a disc or whatever it was. Now, nowadays, you can do that that took me about 24 months from beginning to end, right? To develop, I wrote papers, I published, I was in conferences. Right now, the very same process that I developed over 24 months, it's like two lines of code in a publicly available open source library that is out there in like 30 years, right? And this is the beauty of technology. It feeds upon itself. And uh, to, to wrap this reasoning, I'll give you uh, uh, what I think is the best example of how this intersection of different technologies is really taking over uh, the landscape. Uh, if you think about why life sciences uh, and biotechnology has been moving at the speed of light right now, it's of course we had this, well, we still are technically in a pandemic which really accelerated the interest and the development of many technologies that are now uh, available. But at the end of the day, this is all about us understanding better 
laws of nature, how cells work, how, how, how proteins work, how our organic parts, bits and parts work, and making equipment cheaper, microscopes and CRISPR analytics and genomics and proteomics and metabolomics. And you bring those two completely, quote unquote, unrelated bits of electronics and biology together. And now you have diagnostics companies, therapeutics, new drugs, digital health, all those encounters among different developments in, in science, engineering, in, in, in physics, chemistry, biology, when they merge, they produce, this is where the value comes from. This is where you produce a, a life-changing device or algorithm or, or component. And this is what I think the book tries to cover by, by breaking down those multiple types of technologies. I think it becomes clear over time how they ultimately, they don't exist on a standalone basis. They ultimately mix and match and create a, you know, a, a brave new world. And the reason I wanted to throw that in now before we start to go into the other chapters is to provide it as a lens through which our audience will either hear if they're listening to us or watch us. All these different chapters, that's the thing to have in mind. It's not each one. You systematically take each one and go right back to the past and bring it right to the present. But that's not the point. It's about how they'll collide in the future as well. Speaking of which, the one that is often a very, very difficult debate, one that is answerless, as you say in the book, is the future of jobs and does technology mean the end of jobs, etc, etc. That is the shortage of jobs caused by the substitution of human labor by machines. This is a debate that's gone right back very, very long time ago, right back to even the early Greeks and the whole idea of whether machines can take off tasks that we would find repetitive and boring, but also what does it mean to our purpose and all these type of things. It raises a hell of a lot of questions, but that's also one that we need to think about, about some of the other technologies as well, because one that always comes to mind for me is, well, if we're living longer and we're curing disease and we're having more comfortable existences as we grow older, not in older age being debilitated with sickness, etc. It not only means that we'll have to work longer, we might want to work longer. But it also has great impacts on stuff like pensions, because I'm no longer contributing towards the pension fees. It also means towards me as a as a, a parent, I'm in the sandwich generation where I have to care for my parents and maybe have to care for my sorry, my children, but also my parents. So all these kind of permutations have a dramatic effect on how we're going to live in the future as well. I'd love you to, to maybe start with that part about the debate that goes right back to the dawn of man, and where we are today in it all. Absolutely. The, the whole idea of, of technology coming in and making our lives easier uh, is not black and white, like, like everything else. It's all about who is going to be impacted and who is going to support this change and who is going to have to reinvent themselves to be able to kind of continue to survive and make a living. And the fact of the matter is that technology has been creating uh, uh, what is called in the world, uh, what is called the creative destruction. So the technology destroys jobs 
but at the same time, it creates new opportunities. Uh, and we have, of course, now a bunch of careers that didn't exist uh, like 30 years ago, and that were created because of technology. And I would go out on the limb to say uh, that we're going to see more of that. I think in five or 10 or 15 years, we're going to see careers that didn't exist just a couple of years ago, right? And the fact of the matter is that no matter which slice of history you want to cut, uh, you can go, you know, the Industrial Revolution was probably when we first realized that machines were coming for a ton of jobs. Uh, that's when the Ludits came to play and when you had the, the French workers throwing their sabots into the machines to clog the, uh, the uh, coils to make sure that no work could be done. That's the origin of the word sabotage. That's the word that now we associate with deliberately breaking something or harming something to make sure that it cannot function. And the, the common thread up until a few years ago was, okay, I can see how automation takes low, uh, you know, workers that are not very skilled out of a job, the low end of the job market, but me, I'm a lawyer, me, I'm a translator, me, I'm a surgeon, I'm okay, I'm fine. And this is the dramatic change that we are now witnessing, right? And that's what we talk about in the book for, for, for uh, throughout this chapter, actually. It's about right now, it's not only the low-end jobs that are going to be potentially replaced, right? You have now machines that can read and write. So ultimately, they can evaluate a legal contract as long as it's not incredibly complex and subtle, it can evaluate it. We have computer vision algorithms evaluating insurance claims. We have real-time translation occurring, you know, those uh, sci-fi devices where you spoke with an alien and you could understand and be understood because there was real-time translation. This is happening now. You can use Skype uh, and speak in English and be heard in German and vice versa. And it's only going to get better because the more data you feed into the system, the better it's going to get. So all of a sudden, so surgery, right? Right now you need a medical doctor to operate. Now you already have a medical doctor that can be sitting miles away from the operating theater using virtual reality or using ro robots to do their bidding. And in the future, simple procedures are going to inevitably be handled by robotic arms and robotic devices. And all those careers that we felt that were going to be untouched by technology are now, uh, I think, looking around and say, okay, we are now in a phase where it's not only the mechanization, it's also the cognition and the recognition part of our jobs that is in jeopardy. And there have been a ton of researchers that have written about that. There's a very famous work developed by Oxford researchers back in 2003, I think, where they took a very methodical and very quantitative approach to the problem. They took 750 jobs and they mapped their cognitive, qualitative, subjective uh, parameters. And they estimated that no less than 47% of those careers would be replaced in some way uh, or fashion by machines. And global consultancies have, have pegged this between 10 and 50%. 
and, uh, and, and research centers. This has been a, a problem that has occupied the minds of a ton of researchers. But the fact of the matter is that no matter where those percentages land, we now live in a world where the consequences of automation, of new technologies, of AI, are going to really change the, the landscape of, of jobs. And when you pile that with where our education system is at on one end and where our life expectancy is and will probably continue to expand over time, you have like the perfect storm for a world where occupation, job, making a living becomes incredibly complex. And this is exactly why we have a chapter on longevity, we have a chapter on education, we have a chapter on the job market, because to your previous point, they're very interconnected and we try to shine a light at them individually. And then we try to kind of merge them further down the road so that people realize how complex this issue really is. I'm so glad you said that I, I was speaking at a, uh, for an event recently, and I was speaking about AI and how it would affect the legal industry. So people working in law, for example, I, I mentioned paralegals, you know, that all, all, you know, sifting data to be able to provide, oh, here's a case of Perlmutter versus McCullough in 1972. And bring it to your four, it becomes really interesting. Uh, for those who, who know the show Suits, it was Meghan Markle's role in the in the show Suits. Um, she was a paralegal. But at the end of the conference, then one of the MC, uh, the guy who was interviewing me, he was a seasoned lawyer. And he went, Oh, well, that, this won't affect any of our people here. And I was like, kind of going, No, no, it will. It's, <laughs> it's gonna wipe out jobs. And as a result, but I wasn't being a pessimist about it. I was actually going, what it means is you need to be more flexible in your mindset, and you need to be open to this, you need to be open to learning and unlearning. You sh guys should be learning about this stuff, because it's going to be your future, you should be learning about blockchain and smart contracts and how that works, etc. And then merge that with the knowledge that you already have. That's the genius of this type of world. It's not that we're going around there, like you say, with humility, we're not banging on thing on the world's ending, the sky's falling down, it's changing. And as a result, we need to have this very flexible mindset about being open to that change. That's 100% right. And the changes that we usually looked at with historical lenses, right, they took decades or, or centuries to, to, to play out. They're now playing out in front of our eyes during our lifetimes. And this is why you're exactly right. It's not that you know jobs are going to become useless. It's you have to be smart about what parts of your job will be potentially taken over by a machine or an algorithm and how you can come in with qualitative skills, emotional skills, subjective skills, and ultimately improve on that. So much so that jobs that have a very heavy uh, a percentage of human skills or emotional skills attached to them are the ones that are probably quote unquote safer from change, even though I'm not sure if this is really good to be uh, you know, immune to change, but psych psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers uh, and, and, and high level uh, functioning jobs where you have to deal with emotions and with you know, emotional cues and human behavior, those are the ones that are harder to automate, but give it time. It's today, this is the scenario, but if, if technology 
taught us anything is that it will not stop. It will become better and better and better. And now you can ultimately chat with a bot and not know it's a bot. You can talk with the automated response system and think it's a human. We are getting that good. And this is what I think is fascinating. And I think people have to be very, very uh, aware of so that they can take the smart decisions about their careers and their kids' careers. One of the big challengers of roles in the future is AI, artificial intelligence. And you, you talk about the history of that as well. And you move right back to the history, stemming back to the ancient Greeks, to Mary Shelley, to Ada Lovelace, Charles Babbage, and of course, Alan Turing. Maybe you'll bring us on a whistle top stop tour of this history. Absolutely. The, 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 the fascinating thing about AI is that it's, it's almost human to think about, you know, machines that can create or can reason or can uh, infer uh, from the existing reality. And something that shocks a lot of non-technical people is that although computers are amazing at doing math and doing uh, very precisely guided processes, they really are bad at doing anything where you and me, we cannot come up with a set of instructions, right? So uh, a very obvious example is image recognition, right? Computers are terrible uh, at recognizing a shape, an animal, a person, a place, uh, because uh, the way you and I would do it is very hard to explain, right? There, we now know there, there are those processes happening in our brain that we take the light that hits our eyes and this light uh, stimulates a retina and then some nerves and then a specific part of our brain is, is fired and a combination of neurons will tell us, oh, there's Aiden, oh, there's a cat, oh, there's my house. And this is very hard to explain to a computer. And this is how I think if we go all the way back to, uh, to the Greeks and to uh, uh, the author of, 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 of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, and of course to Babbage, the analytical engine and Turing with his amazing contributions to uh, developing uh, the, the computer science world, we realize that the, the, the mindset, the AI mindset is one that is pervasive over time. We had a number of false starts, right? We had a number of, of, of AI winters. That's how we refer to times where investments in AI dried up because people were frustrated by the results. Uh, and, uh, and my choice of doing AI was at the tail end of one of those winters back in the mid 1990s. Uh, and right now, what we're seeing is this, uh, this point of no return where research in AI has exploded and we have now created so many fascinating algorithms and techniques that allow us now a machine has better image recognition capabilities than a person. There's this, uh, this uh, contest that has been organized uh, by a Stanford professor called Fei-Fei Li uh, and that has started where machines had a 25 to 28% error rate in the very early days of the contest, and now they are below 5%, which is better than humans. 
we're going to see the same thing with voice recognition. We're now seeing GPT-3 and all the other rich models that are able to emulate conversations and inferences becoming bigger and more powerful. So we're tricked into thinking we're talking to a computer. We're, we're not really realizing it's a machine. And we're going to be really uh, leaping into a world where AI is going to be pervasive and much like Google or, or any search engine you might use, uh, there is a, a specific part of our world where AI is going to be embedded in our lifestyle, in our day-to-day, and we are not going to escape that. And the challenges for us uh, are going to be how to keep that AI fine-tuned, useful, and ethical. And these are some of the problems and challenges we would discuss throughout the, the, the chapter. And I, I find it fascinating, right? Firstly, the, the history you present us with, but then to look at where we are today. So when you understand these, I find this is the huge benefit of reading diverse content like this and understanding Moore's law, understanding the speed of exponential growth, understanding how deceptive that is. Because for example, I've got a Roomba at home, right? And, and I look at it, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a toy. And for example, Alexa, so there's an Alexa at home, my kids when we first got it, were asking loads of questions, then they grew bored of it, or Siri on your phone, people at the start, always underestimate the technology, but they forget exponential growth, because in time, it becomes faster and more powerful. And all of a sudden, the Roomba starts to be able to do way more chores around the house. And uh, we just take our eye off the ball. And that's what happens. And, and that's why it's so valuable, I'm sure for you as an investor. And I have to take my hat off to you with the amount of research you've done here. And your recall of all that research, by the way, today as well is fascinating. It's, it's been fascinating to talk to you about this. I'm just going to remind our audience here, this is part one, I thought maybe we'd do a two part, I think we're going to need more gee than two parts, if you're up for it. Absolutely, sure. Because we're only, we're only on chapter two, and we only just basically touched on chapter two as well. But uh, w maybe next day, we're going to go into IoT, robotics, biotech, nanotech, 3D printing, everything is in this book, every aspect of the future of the present future is in that book. Where can people find you Guy, for consultation for keynotes, you mentioned you speak at events, but also for perhaps investment opportunities. So I think the easiest way to hand to, to find me, uh, the book has a splash page presentfuturebook.com. So there's a there's a way to contact me there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Guy Perlmutter. I'm on LinkedIn at Guy Perlmutter. So basically Google me and uh and and you'll find me. It's not not hard. It's been a pleasure talking to you on part one of our show, author of Present Future, Business Science and the Deep Tech Revolution, Guy Perlmutter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aidan. Looking forward to our second conversation. I hope you're enjoying this exponential series powered by our sponsor Zai. Zai is a global fintech transforming the future of financial services and powering its customers by making innovative financial services accessible to all. You can find them on hellozai.com. I'll see you next time where we'll follow up again for part two with Guy Perlmutter on his book, 
present future. Don't forget, you can win a copy by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter. I'll put you in the hat to win a copy.